hear the word of the Lord from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the people of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is the third Sunday of Advent even though it's 60 degrees outside. It's kind of weird. (laughs) The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, and that word means coming or arrival. So during the season, we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, and we also look forward to his second coming. It's common during Advent to think about Jesus coming through four different lenses or four different themes. Um, They're represented by the four candles of the Advent wreath. So if you pick up an Advent wreath or if you have one at home, there's four colored candles and the fifth candle in the middle is Christ's candle. We light that on Christmas Eve and then we burn that all year long until Good Friday, if you remember. And on Good Friday, it gets, we blow it out and then we, light, we relight it again on Easter. But the four candles around there represent hope, um, love, joy, and peace. If you think about it, these are four of the most foundational needs we all have as human beings. We all desire love. We all desire love. We all want peace in our world. And none of us can live very long without hope. But it doesn't take much research to know that our world today is lacking in all of these attributes. Our world, in many ways, is a really cold place. But just like in a cold house, If you want to get warm, you need to get close to the the furnace or get close to the heater or get close to the fire. If you want hope, love, joy, and peace, you need to get close to the source of those. You need to get close to something that has those attributes. And that thing, that something, is Jesus. When Jesus comes into your life, he brings with him hope, love, joy, and peace. Because of that, Christians should be the happiest people in all the world. People should be coming up to us all the time, asking us for the source of our joy and delight. But for most of us, that's not the case, is it? Why is that? Well, it's my personality. I'm an introvert. It's my personality. I'm angry. (laughs) It's my... Or it's my, you know, family of origin issues, right? I had a really rough upbringing. I had a really... Sad, sad upbringing. I had, didn't have a lot of joy in my house. There was abuse, so there was addiction, and there was poverty, and there was a lot of things that, you know, sap my strength and take my joy. Now, that's a good, kind of brings up a good thought. Do those of us who have had a really difficult life, full of trauma and loss, 
Do we get a pass when it comes to being joyful people? Well, what we're going to learn today from this book of Zephaniah is that there is a joy to be had that goes deeper and it's more powerful than any grief or loss that anyone has ever experienced. I like to say it like this. When Christ comes into your life, he brings with him an expulsive joy. An expulsive joy. What does that mean? He comes in and he pushes grief, loss, pain. He pushes, pushes those things out and he brings joy with him. Now, does that mean that we tip through the, tiptoe through the tulips and we, everything, where we go is rainbows and butterflies? No, absolutely not. What we're going to see today, by looking at this small Old Testament book, um, the book of Zephaniah, if you're not aware, it's only three short chapters long. It's one of the 12 books in the Old Testament that are categorized as the minor prophets. Um, I know you already know this. You were probably reading this in your daily Bible study this week, right? You're pulling all the kids up around the dinner table. Let's talk about the prophet Zephaniah. This is just the perfect time of year to do that, right? I know we're not doing that. Um, but it's important for us, before I jump in, to give a little background, okay? We need to know what was going on. And even some of you, when I say Old Testament, that means um, the books before Jesus came, okay? Basically, the book, books before Jesus came, we call the Old Testament. The books when Jesus came and after Jesus came, we call the New Testament. And this book of Zephaniah was written during the reign of a guy named Josiah. Sometimes, sometime in the early 600s before Christ. So this, right now, this book is about 2,700 years old from where we are right now. It's a really, really old book. Now, why is that important? Well, at this time, 600 years before Christ, Josiah had begun to reign in Judah, okay? This was about 80 years after, okay, we all know about Israel. Well, Israel, about 80 years before, got split into two kingdoms, okay? The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And uh, Israel had been swept away by the Assyrian invaders. If you are reading my book and Jonah is freaking out about Assyria, right, about Nineveh, about Iraq around him, he doesn't want them to get grace. He's worried they're going to come in and ransack them. They're an imperialistic nation that's going to take o- that's taken over all other nations. Israel's this little tiny nation. They think Assyria's going to come in and get them, right? And God sends Jonah to Assyria to preach the gospel. He's freaking out. Well, here we are um, about 80, 90 years later, and Jonah's worst fear actually happened. Assyria came in and took over the northern tribes of Israel. And no- the northern tribes of Israel have never were wiped, literally wiped off the face of the planet, okay? All that was left of Israel now is this little tribe of Judah and Jerusalem, okay? So all that's left is this little, you know, little Judah. And unfortunately, Judah, it's like this. When you are a, if you are a second-born child or a third-born child and you see your older brother do something and get a whooping, right? The second-born child, that's a grace for you right? You're like, oh, that didn't go well for him. I won't do that, right? Well, unfortunately, Judah didn't learn from big brother Israel. And Israel rebelled and ran away and worshiped other gods. And God gave them over to Assyria and Assyria wiped them off the face of the planet. And Judah looked at him and goes, eh, I don't know. And Judah did the same thing, pursuing other gods and worshiping other gods and basically seeking other lovers, if you want to tie this into last week. And they didn't repent. They didn't seek God. Instead, they just kept sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into sin and rebellion against the law of God until, this is interesting, 
the 18th year of King Josiah's reign, um, the priest Hilkiah goes down, basically I think of it like this, he goes down into the basement of the temple and he finds and he uncovers this old, the Old Testament, he uncovers the book of the law and he brings it up, he's like, oh, this is probably important, right? The whole story of God, right? The, 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 the whole, the pent- he, he opens it up, and, oh, we forgot about this, the God who's rescued us from Israel. He brings it up to Josiah, he begins to read the law of God to Josiah and Josiah is just undone. He weeps, he tears his clothes, he repents. He says, what have we been doing? We've forsaken our first love. We've walked away from the God of the covenant, the God who's pursued us for so many years and gave us so much grace. We've walked away from him. And so he, he starts this national work of reform, okay? He's trying to reform Judah. He's doing everything he can. He cuts down all the Asherah poles. He, he removes all the wicked priests, He's doing everything he can to bring repentance and to bring revival and bring restoration to a broken, wicked nation who's turned on their God. We don't know anything about that. And over the next 13 years, Josiah leads this huge reformation based on this uncovering and rediscovering the law. He's trying to renew the covenant between God and his people. But here's here's the story. But the people continue to rebel. The Reformation was coming kind of from the top down, but many of the people of Judah refused to repent and worship God alone. So God sends this word to the prophet Zephaniah, all right? That's that's the context that we're at. The king's trying to reform the people, but the people don't, don't really want anything to do with it. So God speaks through this prophet Zephaniah. And in the first chapter of the book of Zephaniah, okay, I'll tell you this. Don't read it to your kids before bedtime, all right? It's probably one of the scariest chapters in all the Bible. God has literally had it with his adulterous bride, his people that are running from him. He's had it with them, and and he, he literally says, okay, here's what's coming. The day of my wrath is coming, and I'm going to wipe everything off the face of the earth. Like beast, people, I'm just fed up and I'm just going to destroy it all on the coming day of the Lord. I will, he says this, judgment is coming for your sins. I will utterly sweep everything away from the face of the earth. Uh, God says that he will cut off mankind from the face of the earth because they, this is why, they say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. See, they had turned their back on God and God was saying, that's it. Enough of your adultery, enough of your rebellion. Judgment is coming. It's a, it's a scary verse, a scary chapter. But then, interestingly enough, so it's Jeremiah chapter one, it's all about this coming judgment that's coming, right? But then, interesting enough, in the second chapter, chapter two, this is what God says to his people. He says, seek the Lord, O humble of land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So God promises like, I'm sick and tired of your your rebellion. I'm going to wipe injustice off the earth. The evil amongst you, the evil on the world, I'm sick of the evil, I'm sick of the injustice. I'm gonna wipe it off the face of the earth. But if you will humble yourself and you will repent and you will seek the face of the Lord, I will hide you in the day of my wrath. I will save you from it. God says, humble yourselves. Repent of your sins and obey God's commands and you can be saved from the wrath of God. See, in the midst 
of this rebellion, in the face of judgment, God still gives his bride, his, still gives his people a chance to repent. And that this is now kind of their choice. Continue in your own way, doing your own thing, and receive the full force of the wrath of God for your rejection of him, or humble yourselves, repent, and seek the Lord, who will show compassion to them and shelter them in the day of the Lord. And then when we get to chapter 3, the prophet gives one more final warning, and he says this. This is kind of gives a picture of it, of what's going on in the city of... He's, he's using, he says Israel, but think of it. It's not really Israel. It's Judah and Jerusalem, fraction of what they used to be. And this is what he says to her. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. Speaking of his bride, rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city, the oppressing. They, they were oppressing the poor. She listens to no voice. You hear that? She accepts no correction. So see, it's pride in her heart. Israel had become pride. Who is God to tell me what to do? We'll live our life the way we want to live it. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. So he's giving one more final warning. Your pride is going to be your downfall. Humble yourselves, repent. But this is where, you're reading this book, right? And if you have this picture in your mind of an angry God who just likes to shoot lightning bolts from his fingers from heaven, right? You're like reading the first two chapters and you're like, I knew he was like this. This is why I don't read this stuff. But then you get to chapter three and it's like a complete flip. It, it just, it's going, I hope it's going to blow our grids this morning. Our gray matter is going to be challenged because how fast it turn, the turn of events happens in chapter three. It's like this, you're walking down this really dark hallway and you turn a corner and when you turn this corner, all of a sudden, you know, you see this bright light at the end of the, at the, end of the hallway. That's kind of what happens in chapter three. You turn this corner and the light comes on. Zephaniah begins to say that there is going to come a day. Again, this was 600 years before Jesus was born. There's going to come a day when God will convert the nations that Israel has been unfaithful to God as his specific people. So God is going to open up his offer of salvation to all the nations of the world. Anyone who humbles themselves and seeks his face will find refuge in the Lord. And what was promised for this little tiny nation in Israel, that he would be their God and they would be his, his people, that because of their unfaithfulness, God's going to open it up to anyone. It's going to open it up to the nation, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And then... I want you to listen kind of how the book of Zephaniah, we've already read it, but I want to read it together. And let's put it up on screens. If you have your Bible, Zephaniah chapter three, you better go to the table of contents if you want to find it quick. It's hard to find, little tiny prophet, middle of your Bible. And then listen, when I get into this, let me tell you this. This is kind of confusing, okay? The book of Romans teaches us that basically there's two Israels. Okay, you have the nation of Israel, but then in the book of Romans says, hey, listen, Israel is the people of God, but actually the true Israel are the people who put their faith in God and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become the true Israel, okay? So when we say Israel, when we're reading scripture and we say Israel, we're not talking necessarily about the country, okay? We're not, we're not talking about the country. We're talking about God's people who've been chosen by grace, who've put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's who we're talking about. Now, 
the nation of Israel does have some promises in Scripture that God's going to gather them together and God's going to bring them back in. But as of right now, they have rejected God and God has passed over them and God's, you read all about it in Romans, and God's welcoming them in. So when we're reading here about Israel, he's talking about anyone who puts their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ, okay? Let's, let's, let's look at this. Look at verse 14. I said when we started this out, Christians should be the happiest people in all the world. Now, I do not mean like phony, fake cheese, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about like, you know, turn that frown upside down and walk around like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a real power inside of you that causes you to be joyful. And we're going to look at that right now. What's going on? Oh, there we go. We got it. Look at verse 14. This is what he says in this wicked, this crazy little book. This is how he ends. These people that are running away from God, he says this, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. O daughter of Zion. That just means a chosen one of God, okay? Zion is another word for Jerusalem. He says this, shout, O Israel. So people of God, shout. So first thing he says is sing aloud, those who have been saved by faith. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. Now, this is why if you're reading this book, like if you're reading the whole book, which I encourage people to do, don't just read chapters, read a whole book. If you can read this book, you got all this coming judgment, you got this middle ground in chapter two where you're kind of confused, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, you're like, sing, shout, rejoice and exult. And it's like whiplash. Like what is going on right now? And it's important for us, I, I want us to do a little work here. When it says exult, now, there's a few of you who might know what that means. You're probably English majors if you do. Because there is a big difference between the word exalt and the word exult. It's just one letter, one vowel, right? A and a U. But to exalt means to lift something up, okay? To exalt means to take something to a place of honor, to bring it up. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying exalt God. He's saying exult. Now, the word exult is to, listen, rejoice greatly or to be jubilant or triumphant. To exult in something means to enjoy it, to thoroughly find joy in it. And so here he's telling God's people to exult with all their heart. Find joy. Enjoy this. Now, here's, what, here's the difference. For me to exalt the, the University of Alabama football team, actually, I really can't exalt them because they're already at the top of the class. They're already up there, right? So I can't lift them up, but I can and I do exalt in them when they win. What does that mean? That means I might walk with a little swagger after a victory, right? I, but I thoroughly enjoy them destroying teams. Like, I find joy in it, okay? Like, that's the difference between exalting, lifting something up, and exalting, enjoying something, okay? Think about your wife. Think about your spouse. We're commanded by God. We're called to exalt in her, to enjoy her. God commands us to enjoy our spouse, to find joy in them, all right? We are, now this is interesting. I want you to think about this. We are commanded by God to exult in him, to enjoy him. Were you ever told that as a child? You should enjoy God. 
Think about that. That means you should find him exceedingly joyful in himself. You should enjoy being alone with him in an empty room. You should enjoy him on a lake, in a pond, wherever you're at. You should enjoy him in the woods. You should enjoy him. There's a sense of finding him joyful. God is saying here, enjoy me. Exalt in me with all your heart. God's telling us that if you know God, who he truly is, you are going to enjoy him. You're going to enjoy him with all of your heart. See, this is, makes sense of what Jesus said. This is part of loving God. You can't love God if you don't enjoy him. Now, what do we do when we enjoy something immensely? Most of us, we sing, right? We sing. We enjoy our wife. Well, you never know. Maybe back in the day, back in the day, you might have sang it. You might have sang to her. She might have, like my wife, she sings over me every night. Every night before bed, she just, that was my wife up here singing, if you didn't know. And I just get that every night. She just exults. I'm playing. Never, never. Right? But listen, God's calling us to sing, to shout, to rejoice because we enjoy him. When you enjoy something, a natural response to the human soul is to sing about it. God commands us to sing because he commands us to enjoy him. And we sing because we enjoy God. Now, does that, that might short circuit some stuff going up here. You know, that, that might mess some things up for you. That God, think about all the rules that you know God pushes forward. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. You've got all these rules in your head. Well, add this one rule to it. It might change all the other rules. Enjoy me. Right? That should change the way we think about God. He's commanding us. He's about our joy. He wants us to find joy in him. God's commands, the scriptures tell us, are not burdensome. But listen, if you see God as this angry, bitter, I was with a friend this week, and he, was just, he said, I'm run, I've been running from God for a long time. And I said, describe to me God. And he said, I'm never good enough. Every time I, I say I'm not going to do this, and then I, I commit, and I try, and I come to church, and I, and I work really hard, and then I fail again. And then so I run away from him and he's mad at me, and he's frustrated with me, and why can't I be better? Why can't I get my life together? I'm just screwed up. And I looked at him, and I go, oh, man, bro, I would run from that God too. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, enjoy me. And, you know, he's not, you know, Hitler going, enjoy me. I don't know how that's happening. He is the ocean of joy in himself. He's the source of it all. I've met so many people who try to obey God and yet they don't enjoy him at all. This text is telling us that's an impossibility. You can't obey God if you don't enjoy him. 
Jesus says to love him with all our heart, all our mind. Why do we read so much? And why do we talk so much about, about we get in scripture so much? Because we have to love God with our mind. That means it's going to take, church should take intellectual heavy lifting. If you're going to love God with your mind, it's going to take some theological work. Okay? We can't just sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. All right? For the Bible somewhere, I think, tells me so. We need to get down in the text and love God with our mind. All right? Well, what this is also telling us is we have to enjoy God. That's saying we have to love God with our heart too. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's going to take our heart fully engaged. To try to obey Jesus without loving him is giving Jesus your will, but not your heart. I was reading in a, the, the Songs of Jesus, Tim Keller's devotional this week, and he said this, ethical compliance without fervent worship means you've given God your will, but not your heart. So some of you, you've grown up in a religious home, and so you do the right things, but you don't enjoy God. That means you've given him your will. I don't want to go to that hot place, so I guess I'll do this. And you haven't given him what he really wants, and that's your heart. You don't love him. You don't enjoy him. So here's the million-dollar question. God commands me to enjoy him. Why should I enjoy God? And some of you are like, how? How do you enjoy God? Well, the short answer is because God in himself is eternally enjoyable. He is the Pacific Ocean of joy. That's the biggest water, body of water on the face of the earth. He's the Pacific Ocean of joy. He's the source of all joy. But Zephaniah shows us some very specific reasons for us to enjoy him. And they're all ultimately found in the gospel. So what I'm going to do is like we do around here, I'm going to read this uh, Old Testament text and I'm going to show us how Jesus is the fulfillment of it, okay? So I'm going to read Jesus back into the Old Testament, how the New Testament authors teach us to do that. Let's look at verse 15. So he's saying, sing aloud, shout, rejoice, exult. Find God enjoyable, sing to him, shout to him. That's why we do it on Sunday. I hope you do it in your car, and I hope you do it at home as well. Verse 15, why should I worship God? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Listen, when God looks down at us, he sees us for how we are. He's not a chump, right? He's not your mama, right, who sees you through rose-colored glasses. Teachers tell you, oh, he's doing this. Oh, no, he probably's not. That teacher's out to get him, right? No, 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 no. God sees you for who you really are. He knows the wickedness in your heart, the selfishness. He knows how, right, you'd rather buy something new for yourself than bless the poor. He sees that in your heart. You'd rather tear somebody else down to make yourself look good. He sees all this in our heart. Like there's, there's true wickedness in us. And that's what, at Sacred City, we just want to be honest about it. Like I am the chief sinner here, okay? I, I am just as sinful as you are, all right? I am, wi- I am wicked in my own heart. Listen, let me just tell you how big of a freak I am, okay? I wrote this stupid book and for two or three nights, I've been up in the middle of the night dreading my first negative review on Amazon, okay? That's me, and I've been, what, I'm, this, what I'm about to preach to you, I've been preaching to myself all week long, right? Justin, your identity's not in this stupid book, right? Your identity's not in what you've read. Somebody out there is going to say something bad about it, and it's gonna be on the internet for every troll in the universe to repost, right? It's possible. 
but it wakes me up at night, right? It wakes me up at night. That's how stupid I am, right? And, I, and hey, and I'm leading you guys, so what's that say about you? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. But listen, this is, what, this is what the scripture's saying. All of those judgments against us, you're sinful, you're broken, every sin that's ever been committed will be judged by hell. Like on one day, God is going to stand and every evil person who's sinned against him will be sent to hell. This is what he's saying. He's not saying no big deal. He's saying, I have taken away the judgment against you. What's that? Jesus Christ on the cross took your judgment. Everything that that you deserve, right? The wrath of God that you deserve, Jesus took it on the cross. That's why it was so bloody. That's why it was so violent. That's why it was so dark. It was the sin of the world placed on a sinless son of God. God has cleared away your judgment. So now if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is no sin that stands against you right now. You stand in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Second thing he says he, will, he does, verse 15. He says he's cleared away your enemies. What does that mean? Sin is an enemy. He's cleared it away. Hell is an enemy. There is no lo- longer fear of judgment. Uh, John says in 1 John that perfect love casts out all fear. There's no longer thought of, the, of hell. Jesus has wiped it clear for us. Third, death. Death has been defeated. When a believer in Jesus Christ dies, they enter into eternal life, and then when Christ comes back, he brings all those people back with him, and they repopulate the earth. We get new heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. We get new created bodies that we are not, we do not just die and disappear. Death has been defeated. And ultimately, think about it right now as well. There's also, this is looking forward to the future. When Christ comes back, all of our enemies, all evil will be defeated. Gone off the face of the planet. No threat of ISIS. No threat of terrorism. Jesus Christ is going to do that. And he doesn't do it like a sheep. He came and died like a sheep, like a lamb. But when he comes back the next time, he does it like a warrior. And he says that blood will run up to a horse's hilt. That's pretty freaky. But if you've ever suffered injustice, if you've ever been in a, in a, if you've ever been in a society that you've been, been, not just like somebody, you know, got in a Facebook fight with me, right? And that's some kind, somehow persecution. But I'm talking about really the threat of violence that you know that the hope for God's future judgment, right? That brings a lot of peace, the Hitlers of the world can't just pull the trigger and get away with it, shoot themselves and get away with it. There is coming a judgment for them where God will wipe away all evil. Next, he says, the Lord, verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. The Lord is in your midst. Jesus Christ left heaven and he came and dwelled among God's people and that brings them great peace. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, and that's the people of God, fear not, O Zion. Let your hands not grow weak. Look, the Lord your God is in your midst. How is he? A mighty one who will save. Jesus came and lived among us. Now he dwells among us through his spirit and his church. And because of that, we have no evil to fear. What can, Paul says it like this, what can man do to to me? If God be for me, who can be against me, right? There's evil can't, the worst thing that could happen is we die and we go and we be with Christ in eternity forever. 
Jesus has brought us all that. Now, the Lord your God is in your midst like a mighty warrior sent to save you. Praise God. This should fill us with great joy. But the next few lines in verse 17 are just absolutely over the top. Every single Christian should memorize them. If you think that God is cruel, if he's absent or distant or cold, like I, I, this, I hope this changes your perception. Like I would run from that God too, but don't run from this God. Look at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. What? He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt, there's that word again, exalt over you with loud singing. That means he will find great joy in you and will sing over you. Now, first off, we got to remember, God looks down. How, how is he going to find us pleasurable? You know it, right? You, you feel the weight of your sin and the distance you feel. You leave this building and it begins, right? You feel farther away from him. You, you, you sin. You, you, how could God look down from heaven and find us pleasurable and actually enjoy us, his rebellious people, and then sing over us? This should shock us. And one of the things it says here, it blows me away. It says, his, as he's singing over us, his love song quiets us. What does it mean to be quieted by his love? Well, it doesn't mean to stop singing because he's already commanded us to sing. No, it quiets our fears. See, when I'm freaking out about what somebody might say about this thing I've produced, see, I'm anxious. I'm not quiet. My soul... My soul is not quiet within me. I'm worried about what people may say about me, what my reputation is. But when I hear the love song of Jesus over me, I'm reminded my identity is not found in what I do. It's found in what Jesus Christ has done. So no matter what anyone says about me, I am still adopted. I am still loved. I am still forgiven. I am still counted righteous in Christ because of the perfect work of Jesus on my behalf. So what does that do? quiets my heart. See, love quiets us. If you're in the presence of someone you really love, you don't have to have the TV on. You don't have to have Facebook up. You don't have to be Instagramming. You can just be. You can just enjoy their presence, right? When you're in the presence of someone you really love, you're not worried that you're going to get bored. You get to enjoy them. God says when you're with him, when you're hearing the love song he sings over us, you're quieted from every other fear, all your insecurities, all your strivings. What do we want? Why, why, do, we, why do we work so hard to get the right social media presence? We want people to love us. We want people to like us. We want people to think we're great. We want people to think we, we're great parents and we're great employer, employers or employees and we're, we're great Christians and we're great uh, CrossFitters and, and we're great whatever our hobbies are, we want them to think we're great. That's striving. It takes work. 
Zephaniah the prophet 2,700 years ago says when Christ will come, he'll quiet us with his love and he'll sing over us. John Piper says it like this. When I think of the voice of God singing, I hear the booming of Niagara Falls mingled with the trickle of a mossy mountain stream. I hear the blast of Mount St. Helens mingled with a kitten's purr. I hear the power of an East Coast hurricane and the barely audible puff of a night snow in the woods. And I hear the unimaginable roar of the sun, 855,000 miles thick, 1,300,000 times bigger than the earth and nothing but fire, 1 million degrees centigrade on the cooler side of the corona, but I hear this unimaginable roar mingled with the tender, warm crackling of the living room logs on a cozy winter's night. And when I hear this singing, I stand dumbfounded, staggered, speechless, that he is singing over me. He is rejoicing over my good with all his heart and with all his soul. God commands us to enjoy him and he shows us right here that somehow in the midst of this, he shows us what to do by enjoying us. He sings over us. I'm reminded of the magician's nephew and C.S. Lewis's Narnia series where Aslan sings Narnia out of its winter and into existence. See, God originally spoke creation into existence, but when it comes to us, when it comes to you, he doesn't just speak, he sings. When it comes to the work Jesus has done to save you and change you and love you, this is what's called new creation work. And he sings over it. He exalts over his work of redemption in you. So I want you to get this into your mind because if you're doing really great, you read your Bible six times a day, you haven't cussed anybody out today, you threw a little bit of money in that red plate when you walked into Walmart, you're feeling pretty good, and you're walking in going, God is singing over me, right? And then the next day, right, when you yell at your kids, right, and you snub somebody, you steal that person's parking lot or parking spot, act like you didn't see them, hope they didn't see the Jesus thing on the back of your bumper. What's he saying now? Well, now he ain't singing the blues now, right? He doesn't change his song, but if you think, like he's singing over me based on how well I'm doing in life. One day he sings a love song, the next, song, next time he's singing Adele over me, Right? He's disappointed in me. He's showing us right here. He sings over you, not because of you're so great. He sings over you because of the work he did to save you. He's singing over you over his own fingerprints at work in your life that he has redeemed you. Now, let me just prove this to you, okay? In this text here, we're about to watch things flip. Did you hear? It said, he will sing over you. He rejoices over you. He does all these things. Look at the the way it changes in verse 18. The prophet's no longer speaking. God himself is speaking. And look what God says. I. See how that changed? Went from he, he, he to I will get. Now, let me just say here, right? Let me just stop. 
Every one of us in here have objections to this sermon. We have objections to how I could ever enjoy God. Some of us say, my life was too hard. I just lost a loved one. I have friends and family battling cancer. I'm in mourning right now. I'm in mourning. How can I enjoy God while I'm in mourning? Look at verse 18. God says this, I will gather those of you who mourn so that you will no longer suffer reproach. I, what does God say? Enjoy me, but I'm suffering. I will gather you who mourn. The God who sings, I will gather you. But I'm being attacked by enemies. There's people all around me oppressing me. I can't live my faith at work or wherever it's at. I I feel oppressed all around me. He says in verse 19, behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will deal with every enemy, every liar, everyone who calls you a bigot, everyone who slanders you. I will deal with it. But I can't rejoice in God. I'm too broken. I'm too damaged. My past has been filled with too much sin and too much loss and too much shame. And this is what he says. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. God speaking. You're lame. You're broken. You're insecure. I will gather them. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. But Justin, you don't understand what I've done in my life, the shame. I wake up every morning and the shame is just too much to bear. I just want to end it all. I'm, the shame is, I just can't live with it. The stuff I've done, the pain I've caused other people, the things that I said I would never do, I've done and I can't live with myself because of it. Look at verse 19. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, listen, I will bring you in. See, you don't come to Jesus. Jesus comes and gets you. God comes and brings us in. It's his work that saves us. It's his work that redeems us. It's his work that he rejoices in when he looks at us. He looks at us and goes, that person was so far away. Ephesians 2 says they were dead in their trespasses and sins, and yet I went and rescued them, and they are a different person today. They've been born again. They have a new nature. They have God as their father, and he rejoices in his own work in us. And he says, I will bring you in. I will make you renowned and praised among all the people of the earth, and I will restore your fortune before their eyes. Listen, all of these promises, 600 years before Jesus came, Israel didn't get to experience them. Israel still rebelled. They had this promise from God, and they said, nope, we enjoy living life that we want to live it. And God left them. God passed over them. But because of their rebellion, God offers them to us in Jesus by faith. The sad story of Israel is that they chose to obey some of God's rules, but they didn't know how to enjoy him. They forgot how to enjoy him. Israel never repented, and so eventually, they, they get, even Judah here gets carried off to Babylon and didn't get to experience the amazing promise of redemption and restoration, but the promise remains for us because of the gospel. 
for those who humble themselves, repent of their sin, and embrace Jesus Christ by faith. For those of us who will find Jesus enjoyable, that we will exult in Jesus, these joy-producing promises, every one of them are ours. Now, if you're running from God, if you're if you've had a different, will you, if you've had a different idea of God in your mind, will, I pray that it would change this morning. Will you run from the singing God? The God who's done so much work to save you, sends his own son to live the perfect life and die the death that we all deserve. Will you turn away from the one who has done so much to quiet you with his love and fill you with joy? See, when you, when you push away from church and you push away from, this is who you're pushing away from. You're not pushing away. I mean, you think you might be pushing away from an angry, bitter judgment. That's not who you're pushing. You're pushing away with a God who sings over his people. This morning, as we do every week and we partake of the Lord's Supper, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, you know, at the night that he was betrayed, they sang. They sang the Psalms. And they sang and he broke this bread and he said, this is my body. See, this is the love song. This love song, love looks like this. I'll be broken for you. I'll break myself open to show you how much I love you. That's what he says with the bread. And the blood, he says, I, this, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of my blood, that my blood will is going to be spilled, the wrath of God, I'm going to take it, and I'm going to shed my blood to save you from all your sins. And so when we come to the table this morning, that's what we're partaking in, that Jesus Christ, the love song of Christ, that he was broken and he was poured out to save us from our sins. So believers, come and receive this by faith this morning. Be reminded of the God who loves you so much that he's willing to go this far to save you. Let me pray. Father, I do thank you that you command us to enjoy you and yet you cause us to enjoy you through the work you've done in our hearts. None of us are perfect. All of us fall short. And yet Christ didn't. Christ was perfect. And the perfect life of Christ gets to count on our behalf and that should fill us with great joy. So I pray this morning for those who are suffering, those who are full of shame, those who feel like they've been on the run from you, or maybe they've even, they just never heard this message before. They didn't know there was a God who sang and God who had done so much to love them and to save them. I pray that they would uh, experience you this morning and that you'd fill their hearts with your love and with your joy, that you would be glorified among us and we would enjoy you greatly. I pray all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.